Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In the bond market, the story as follows. Treasuries look a little something like this. Yields dead flat at 284 on a US 10-year. And we are up just a basis point on a US two-year note to 2.26%. For the White House, palace intrigue. Terry Haynes of Evercore wrote the following. Mike Pompeo bringing to the table a harder-line national security background and bent that signals a fundamental shift in the state's role away from conventional negotiator and smoother of diplomatic difficulties to one that may be more more confrontational on all sorts of relationships, including trade. So let's talk about that and bring in Bloomberg's chief Asia economics correspondent, Ender Curran, and Ron Temple, Lazard Asset Management, co-head of multi-asset and head of US equity strategy. He joins us right now. Um, Let's begin with you, Ron. Are we moving towards a confrontational approach on all sorts of relationships, including trade? I do think trade is actually is going to be basically a challenge over the next six to 12 months or longer. And I think we're going to see an ongoing flow of negative trade news out of the administration. So what I'm hearing from DC is that there's quite a bit more lined up. I think there's a focus on the technology sector in particular, once you get beyond some of the old industrial areas like steel and aluminum. So I do worry that this protectionist policy is being embraced by the administration. I and mean, let's be honest, uh, Donald Trump did campaign on a platform of protectionism. Yeah. And so um, what's disturbing to me, by the way, is if you look at it, it's somewhat of a bipartisan appeal. Um, if I look back to the 2016 presidential campaign, there were 20 candidates on the two different stages on the Democratic and Republican stage. I don't believe one of them defended free trade. And so I think this is a transition towards a more confrontational trade policy for the U.S. I want to cross over to Ender Curran. There's several reports in the United States today about the next move from this administration on China. There's a Politico report. There's also a Reuters report saying that the president is eyeing tariffs of up to $60 billion on Chinese goods, mainly focused in the tech and telecommunications sector. Ender, how is this going down in China? I think, Jonathan, that China right now is doing two things. A, they're trying to figure out just what is going on with the U.S. trade policy. We know, for example, that Liu He's visit to Washington, he's Xi Jinping's top economic advisor a few weeks ago. One of his requests was, give me the list in terms of what you need. And secondly, there's a sense that while they are bracing for things to get tougher, there's also a feeling China is willing to make some concessions to try and head this off at the past. They don't want a trade war. It's not in their interest. They know that China's economy would suffer even if they were to strike back. So there's a feeling that when it comes to the 301 and the IP probe, that perhaps China can make some key concessions that would give Mr. Trump the kind of victory he's looking for and would go somewhere towards shrinking the trade deficit and that China's own economy own economy can absorb. Yeah. Now, if those avenues are explored and exhausted, China's also made clear that they can respond if needed. Well, let's be clear here, Ender, as well. News for everyone. China doesn't want the steel jobs. They want the manufacturing value-add jobs in Germany and the United States of America. I imagine China are quite willing to give some se- some concessions around things like steel and aluminum. But the real issues are the ones coming down the road, aren't they? 
That's, that's entirely right, John. You've, you've nailed it. You've nailed it on the head. The issue for China is that there are, the steel and aluminium tariffs, for example, really have a negative impact on China's economy. The washing machine and solar panel tariffs of a few weeks ago, a similar story. It's if the US start heading down the Trump of, heading down the road of targeting much more sophisticated goods that China's trying to get up the value chain on in the area of technology and electronics and the like, that's where it becomes much more sensitive and much more difficult for China. And that's really where they do not want to give up any ground. And that's where we could start heading down the road of tit-for-tat retaliation. And China's made clear they could target, for example, U.S. agricultural goods, soybeans, sorghum. They could target Chinese orders for U.S. Um, goods, and they could target wider China, uh, U.S. investment in China. So there are plenty of avenues they could go down if Mr. Trump does go after their high-value-add stuff. And Kern, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it in China this morning. Ron Temple, you hear Mr. Kern uh, from China there, and it's the immediacy of real things have to get real done. Do you change investment perspective on visible steel and uh, aluminum producers, such as Boeing in the news today with some of their demand for aluminum from China? Uh, we are definitely taking into account what might happen to the cost structure of different companies in which we might invest in terms yeah. of going through and saying, okay, if there's a 25% tariff on aluminum, 10% tariff on steel, I mean, what, what does it mean to the company's cost of goods What's sold? What's your first look at that? Well, I, you know, it, it varies by company. And so then well, you're... Well, pick you, somebody big like Boeing. Yeah. Come on. Well, it, what we're doing is a company by company analysis and effectively looking and saying, okay, if company X is basically affected mm -hmm. by it, then the next step of the analysis, is, okay, what about their competitors? Are their competitors importing steel? Or are they using domestic steel? So does it have the same cost implication yeah. across companies regardless of the sector? And John, what's so interesting about this is the David Lynch article in uh, the Washington Post a few days ago from Joplin, Missouri which is the guy just said, look, this is not about price. It's about quality. Yeah. And the guy had to bring in foreign steel because it was better made than the product he could get here. I just think we've got to get off the topic of steel and aluminum. At the, right. the end of the day, China has a 10-year plan, and it's not to dominate steel and aluminum. It is a made-in-China 10-year plan, 2025, to take over key industries in technology and manufacturing. That is why... The deal for Qualcomm has been blocked by the President of the United States. They need to compete with China on all fronts. And it's not steel and aluminum. So I just wonder why we're sitting here talking about it so much. Because the Germans are incredibly paranoid right now about a stake that Geely has taken in Daimler. Their own technology at home being taken abroad by the Chinese from Germany. This isn't just about the United States of America and this administration defending steel and aluminum. This is about the United States and Europe becoming increasingly paranoid about a 10-year plan of the Chinese to take over some really key industries. And I imagine, Ron, the tension is going to heighten from here, and we won't be talking about metals over the coming years. We'll be talking about real high-end value-added jobs in the United States of America that are growing in Europe and the West, and ultimately will be challenged by China. I think there are two different facets to this discussion. Number one, I completely agree, steel and aluminum, in some ways, it's a tiny part of total trade in the world. It's a tiny part of our imports in the U.S. What I would say on that point, by the way, is I think what the U.S. really should be focusing on is not tariffs, but basically figuring out what we did wrong from a policy perspective related to these heavy industries and textiles, and you might say the old economy. We effectively agreed to free trade agreements, but then we failed to invest in the infrastructure, the education, and the human capital to compete effectively. We didn't make the right choices. Let's fix that and make the right choices in terms of investing in our own country country. 
More importantly, though, if you look to the future, I absolutely agree with you. China has been very explicit about their 2025 strategy in terms of semiconductors and other high-tech industries yeah. where they want to be basically a category killer. And I think yeah. what you're seeing from Washington right now is a fear that they will either buy yeah. and or steal intellectual property. Do we have a 2025 strategy? That was a no, joke. No, we don't. But the, the whole issue is the whole make America great again. You know, people might laugh and joke about it, but there actually needs to be a strategy to take on what the Chinese are doing because the Chinese, Tom, have been cheating. The Chinese are able to go into a country like the United States and like Europe and take big stakes in the companies. Try doing it the other way. And that's what's about to be clamped down on, yeah. and that's what we're seeing in the last 24 hours. But, but I think the Chinese are winning because we forfeited. We don't have a strategy. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, the United States should adopt a Chinese-style central planned economy. I think what we should do is look back and say, what made this country the richest country in the world 60, 70 years ago? It was our investment. It was basically having consistent, predictable rule of law, which, by yeah. the way, when you get back to Washington intrigue, having some consistency and stability is actually important. You know, so I think we actually have to step back and reassess how we're approaching government right now and think about how do you have a five-year budget, not six-month continuing resolutions, right? Yeah. Our Congress and president have failed for years to deliver a budget that you could actually make investment decisions based on as a company. And so I think we actually have to start actually trying to be strategic and having a long-term view. And the only one with a long-term geostrategic view right now seems to be... China and ultimately that's the problem. Ron Temple, Lazard Asset Management, co-head of Moldy Asset and head of US Equity, joining us here in New York City. He, like all of the national media visiting Southwest Pennsylvania, has done a tour de force. No question when all this is over, Kevin Cirilli deserves a yingling beer of his choice. And he joins us now from Southwest uh, Pennsylvania. Kevin, what are you focused on right now as we try to get to 12 noon? Is it a recount? Is it something else? Right now, what I'm focused on is just watching these absentee balance returns come in. Look, it's, it's increasingly unlikely that the Republican Rick Saccone will be able to, to flip the lead to Democrat Connor Lamb. But it's still too close to call. And until these results are certified, uh, you know, we're not going to know. Look, I spoke with a, a former uh, uh, a, a former official to, in the Governor Wolf administration, governor of Pennsylvania, a Republican, who told me that the recount laws are so complex in Pennsylvania. And this is you got to remember, this district's not going to exist after November. So it, it, there's yeah. a lot that I think a lot of folks are weighing right now. Um right. But, you know, Connor Lamb, even if he does, even if the league goes away, right. uh, was able to, to turn out a, a massive it, a flip. Ex explain to our global audience, including John Farrow of the United Kingdom, explain to them how the Republicans will adapt if Mr. Lamb wins. Well, they're going to have to do a couple of things. I mean, President Trump, who knows how he'll react. But I think that uh, they, people could retire. The progressive base is so active right now, and the blue wave is what you're hearing from Democratic strategists that could come in November. And a lot of Republicans in the House in particular are looking and saying, wow, this, President Trump won this district by 20 points in 2016, and he couldn't even, you know, and, and, and a Republican couldn't win there. I, you know, yeah. I, they're going to look at their own future. Kevin, can we talk about the uniqueness of this, and not just if mm -hmm. it's a bellwether? A young Democrat with a military background, 
not exactly running on a traditional Democrat platform, was he? Um, can this really be replicated across the country? That's a really great question, because Republican strategist, uh, Speaker Ryan, uh, made that point to me last night. And I, I, it, I think the point of, of Connor Lamb being a centrist is fascinating, because he ran away from House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. He was in the middle of the road on the Second Amendment on gun control, middle of the road on abortion, um, and, and did not run on a progressive populist message. He ran in lockstep with labor unions, uh, which is interesting, uh, especially for our audience. But he, but he, uh, but he was he was a centrist, and not a and not a massive liberal or a socialist. I mean, within that is a throwback to I guess an old Democratic Party. Can Connor Lamb no get along? Can Connor Lamb, Congressman Lamb, if he wins, can he get along with uh, Senator Warren of Massachusetts? I mean, how is that going to work? Forget about where you are right now in Cannesville, how's it going to work in Washington? Well, he's only going to be there for a couple months until he has to start campaigning again, which everyone, supporters of Lamb and Saccone, were frustrated with. I was, You know, last night, I've heard a lot of political speeches, but watching Connor Lamb speak last night, there was a quote that stood out, and it was, uh, when he thanked Labor, I thought that was interesting, but also when he said, I'm a Pennsylvania Democrat. That is something that you hear a lot when you, when you cover former Vice President Joe Biden, who, who plays up his Scranton, Pennsylvania roots. Biden, of course, was here campaigning for Connor Lamb. That's a very stark contrast from when I cover Senator Elizabeth Warren or Senator Sanders. They're not saying, they're, they're not making that pitch. And they've argued that in the Midwest in particular, you have to run even more progressive. Connor Lamb, Senators Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Manchin's of the world, they disagree. Uh, Kevin Cerulli, we're going to let you go because we know you got so much to do today, plus the exhaustion is sudden. I would go with a black and tan yingling, by the way, Mr. Cerulli. If, That's uh, why it he's is ready, Gavin. Available. It's what. There can always be an argument about when the financial crisis, the Great Recession, began. I always have put it as the third week of August 2007, LIBOR OIS went out, or excuse me, T-bill went out for standard deviations, and we were off to the races. A lot of Europeans will throw it around the French banks, et cetera. What we can all agree is we all know where we were. It's 7.06 p.m. Wall Street time, March 16th of 2008, and then it was on into a dash into March 17th uh, the next day. The single headline headline came across J.P. Morgan Chase to acquire Bear Stearns for $2 per share. John Farrell, it was stunning at the time. It was absolutely just jaw-dropping here at Bloomberg to see. And what's remarkable is 10 years has passed, Tom, you just wonder how many investors are still conditioned by the events of, of 10 years ago. Yeah. I think so. Joining us now, we are honored to bring you Robert Cinch for years definitive with Alan Schwartz at Bear Stearns in uh, FIC Research and, of course, at the time at Bank of America running uh, their foreign exchange and fixed income mandate with David Goldman, uh, uh, among others. Bob Cinch, you were at Bank of America overlooking Central Park South. What was it like when you saw that $2 statistic from Mr. Diamond? Good morning, guys. Well, obviously, uh, incredibly stunning. And for for a lot of people that that I had worked with very early in my career at at Bear Stearns, one of the things about 
about the organization and about the sentiment there is that is that people didn't didn't sell the stock. Um, you know, they held on to it. They viewed it as their retirement package. And a lot of uh, people, you know, not really senior people, but mid-level people who just been accumulating stock, accumulating stock for decades, yeah. suddenly saw that, you know, collapse. I mean, what, what the stock had gotten up to 160 or something and went to right. two. I mean, this was... Uh, this was devastating for a lot of people who didn't even think about selling the stock during their whole right. career. And John, jump in here, but it was absolutely part of the fabric that you got stock dividends from Bear Stearns. They were different, and you got more stock when you yeah. owned it, John. Because it was a currency that was yeah. worth something yeah. um, um, than it wasn't. Bob, to what extent, and we raised this very briefly at the top of this segment, are investors today still conditioned by the events of 10 years ago? You know, I think it's it's beginning to fade. Uh, we're certainly seeing retail investors become uh, and millennials become more involved in in equity markets. Um, you know, but I think that it's 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 on a much different um, you know much different characteristic of the investment. You know, investors are much more oriented towards um, uh, you know towards passive products, towards ETF products. Um, uh, the world has changed a lot in terms of of the sentiment, and I think that that investors are much more skeptical about the ability for, uh, for 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 themselves or for for brokers, frankly, to be able to um, to be able to pick individual stocks. And I think that that's something that's that's you know Vanguard's been at the for- forefront yeah. of, but really is has set into the mindset over the years. It certainly changed the investor approach to investing in um in equities to that extent, but. I still see investors climbing the so-called wall of worry, haunted by the paranoia of what might be around the corner, Bob. And for that matter, haunted by the prospect of a recession. We've forgotten what the average recession is like. And we just have this memory of this deep downturn post-2008. It doesn't have to be that way, does it, Bob? It doesn't. And I think this, this the, the environment we're in, you know, augurs reasonably well. Deep recessions come from uh, from building up excesses in the economy or in the financial markets. Um, there's not a lot of that in the private sector, I would argue, right now. Maybe some companies that might be overpaying for some other companies. I, I think the real excesses that are built up in this cycle have really been on the government debt side. And I think that's where a lot of the uncertainty is going forward with you know financing of of US deficits yet the bond markets are incredibly complacent uh about these financing needs as we go forward over the next not just the next year but I think the next 5 to 10 years there's a real struggle mm-hmm. in in the US budget outlook and how that's going to be financed globally Yet, you know, 10-year yields are sitting here still below 3%. Very quickly, Bob, with that fiscal impulse, do you just assume weak dollar? You know, the dollar is an interesting uh, character right now. Cyclically, uh, as we know, with interest rates, differentials moving sharply in favor of the U.S., the dollar probably ought to be 5 to 10% higher than it is. Yeah. This is really one of those structural environments where the markets, I think, are focusing on the twin deficits and the lack of confidence in U.S. policy, and you're just not seeing the capital inflows into the U.S. that normally should be taking place given the level of U.S. rates relative to the rest of the world. Bob Sinch, Amherst Pierpont, Global Strategist.
Uh, our interview of the day, without question, James Stravitas of the Fletcher School, Admiral Stravitas, of course, more than familiar to all of our listeners uh, worldwide. I can't say enough again about the work he has done into his book. Last night, Admiral, regardless of anyone's politics, this nation was transfixed on just simply the movable events of a 24-hour span. How was this taken by members of the Pentagon, members of the military, and I want to bring it right down to quarters A at the Washington Navy Yard in what Admiral Richardson did in Chief of Naval Operation. You see a Secretary of State fired, I would suggest differently than General Haig of another time in place. What does Admiral Richardson do the next day to provide stability to the sailors? Well, as always, Tom, uh, you got to look back to history to kind of get a sense of this. And I'm, I'm going to take it way back to the 17th century British Admiral uh, John Bing, and he lost a major battle, and he was executed for failing to do his utmost. And uh, Voltaire said, uh, occasionally the British shoot an admiral in order to encourage the others. And I, I feel there's a bit of that going on in this White House. And uh, I think what all of our naval leadership need to do and all our military leadership is just kind of put their arms around their troops and say, look, that's distant thunder out there of politics. Um, we've got an operational job yeah. to do. And I think that's what uh, General Mattis is doing over in the Pentagon today. Do you link General Mattis to the uproar in the White House, all of the speculation, the rumor of General McMaster's future, of Mr. Shulkin's future at the Veterans uh, uh, Administration. Is Mr. Mattis bundled into this, or is the general separate? I think he's completely separate uh, for three reasons. One is his enormous personal reputation, integrity. Number two, he operates an enormous department that is running extremely well. You simply can't fault him on a performance basis. And number three, because Donald Trump has a a kind of a built-in proclivity for military. In fact, look at the replacement for uh, Secretary Tillerson. It'll be Mike Pompeo, West Point graduate, number one Mm -hmm. in his class, by the way. I did not know that. Yes. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, uh, good morning to you, and thanks for being with us. As a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander for Europe 2009 to 2013, I'm wondering if you could comment about Russian Russian violations of uh, NATO airspace uh, over the Baltic and uh, also uh, probably the acquisition of uh, anti-missile defense systems by Turkey, a NATO ally, and those acquisitions are being made from Russia. Yeah, both of these are uh, very, very concerning and and really part of Putin's ongoing efforts to undermine the West and, above all, to kind of break apart the NATO alliance. And he's succeeding extremely well. He's got us in an uproar after intruding into our elections. He is pushed into Ukraine, not a NATO member, but an important country, invaded and annexed. And And he operationally pushes not only in the air, Tim, but also on ships at sea, coming very, very close in very offensive ways in the Black and Baltic Sea. The sale of the S-400 anti-air missiles to Turkey will pull Turkey further out of the alliance, and it will make it hard operationally to integrate their air defense with NATO air defense. So I'd say, overall, Putin is succeeding in putting great pressure on the transatlantic alliance in general, and NATO in particular. And what would you recommend if you got a call from the White House? Is there anything that the U.S. administration can do with its European allies to thwart these advances? When I was 
interviewed by Mr. Trump, then candidate uh, elect Trump, uh, to become Secretary of State in 2016, in the fall of 2016, he asked me the same question. And I, I would give him the same advice now, which is uh, we need to confront Russia. We should confront them on the cyber intrusions, on their behavior in Ukraine and their support for a war criminal, Assad, in Syria. We should confront them where we must, but we should cooperate where we can. And there are zones of potential cooperation with the Russian Federation, counter-narcotics, uh, counter-cyber, counter-operations uh, mm -hmm. in the Arctic and the high north. We've got uh, zones where we can cooperate. So we don't want to stumble back into a full-blown Cold War, but boy, I can see one from here. Let, let's do the ballet, and I don't think I need to be an admiral in the Navy to know Russia will respond to Prime Minister May's speech of an hour ago mm -hmm. uh, with stunning headlines. And yet, there, by all reports, there's a relative silence from the president of the United States. You've spoken to President Trump about these delicate issues with Russia. What, what should he be advised by General Kelly and General Mattis and others to say, Mr. Uh, Secretary-designate Pompeo, to say immediately in support of our key ally? Uh, he should, first of all, align himself with uh, with the British completely. We should consider expelling Russian diplomats in solidarity with the Brits. Uh, we should strengthen our own cyber defenses because that's how he'll continue to try and retaliate against us. Um, we should, uh, thirdly, we should be standing uh, operationally alongside the Brits out at sea and in the air uh, because Believe me, Putin will continue to press on them, and his responses will include expelling British diplomats, but also up-tempo operational challenges to British armed forces at sea and in the air. We need to be with them. Tell us about smart power, and are we being smart with the smart power that the United States has, hard and soft? Yeah, we're not. Um, I think we're doing quite well in the hard power realm. We have the most capable military in the world, full stop. Um, we are a blooded army. We are a seagoing navy. Our, we own the air in many ways. Um, so we're very good at the hard power. We can launch missiles all day long. We need to get better at launching ideas. And that means combining that hard power with development aid, uh, our deployment of hospital ships, our engagement in everything from education and to literacy training. If we combine that hard and soft power, that's what we call smart power. I think, unfortunately, this administration is very top-heavy with military leadership. And frankly, Secretary Pompeo, as I mentioned, West Point graduate, plenty of combat time, a terrific person, terrific officer. But when you add it to all the other generals, you have to start asking yourself, um, if your only tool is a hammer, maybe everything looks like a nail. We ought to be combining soft power alongside the hard power. Let's come back with uh, James Trevitas, Dean of the Fletcher School, Tufts University, Admiral Trevitas, of course, uh, giving us a uh, good perspective always. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.